Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the political theater that voters endured for weeks leading up to the midterms. I think this is the most extreme election, emotionally speaking, that we have possibly ever seen. Did it work? And how much more can we take? Political entertainment. It's drama. It's a reality show. This election is a step towards re-engaging our communities. The psychological toll left post-midterms and what we can expect in 2020. Then, she's the first black woman to be elected bishop of a Christian denomination that's 96% white. So many folks are saying, well, why are you in the quiet church? Why are you in the white church? The Lutheran Church's open-door policy and its move toward more diversity. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the political messaging used to whip up voter turnout on both sides of the aisle. Brian Fitzpatrick defended our nation. Scott Wallace defended the terrorists. Despite shady and negative ads, some with false claims and race-baiting rhetoric. Of course I hate these people. Voters came out, in fact, millions and millions, to cast their ballots, making races like the 5th and 7th congressional districts Finish with hair thin margins, but the question is was the emotional roller coaster worth it? Will America become desensitized? And what can we expect in 2020? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Frank Farley. He's a psychologist and professor at Temple University with an expertise in political behavior. We also have on the phone Kendra Cochran. She's a voter engagement coordinator at Power. And finally, also on the phone, we have David Pallant. He's a professor at County College of Morris and Montclair State University with an expertise and political communication. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Happy to be here. Happy to be here, too. David, I want to start with you. The messaging for the midterm seemed to be all about the president versus the Republican Party. Did it work, in your opinion? From the Republican side, uh, fear appeals were used mainly, uh, especially with the uh, Willie Horton 2.0 ad, which was basically the caravan ad that he released on Twitter that Fox News ended up uh, banning along with Facebook. Um, so they used real uh, negative fear appeals uh, in, in that ad, and it pretty much was a flashback to 1988 uh, from that perspective. On the Democratic side, the messaging uh, ended up, it didn't start, but it ended up looking at health care and uh, the power of Obamacare and um, the uh, pre-existing conditions. So that ended up being the main message, I think, of the Democrats, that they were looking at policy or the Republicans were looking at fear appeals. And did it work? Um, in the red states, I believe it did work. In the blue states like New Jersey, we only have one Republican left out of our uh, House uh, delegation. New Jersey became much bluer, where I think some of the red states uh, turned out the vote and, and got redder. Frank, I mean, this message, I mean, as David mentioned, is very fear-based, a migrant caravan. Also, I saw angry liberal mob. I mean, what does fear do to an average person when they're part of this electorate? Well, I can either turn them on or turn them off. I mean, it's an extreme emotion. You have to use it with great care. 
mm-hmm. because it can work against you. Fear is a human emotion that's extremely difficult to predict outcomes. You know, the Republicans are using the mobs versus jobs. Very catchy. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And it allowed them to pull in some pretty extreme videos of exaggerated mob scenes, you mm-hmm. know, that where there might have been two or three people involved. The Henry Kissinger one is a good example. You mm-hmm. know, the people in the restaurant who sort of were berating Henry Kissinger. Yeah. Uh, not exactly a mob. It looked to me like there may be three or four people, but you could exaggerate it and make it. And, and indeed, it was an, a rather unpleasant thing, but um, extreme. Yeah, very extreme. And Kendra, you were on the ground knocking on doors out there in the streets. What were the folks who were going to the polls saying about what they were hearing? They felt that it was a great deal of divisive speech. And the tactics being used were just honest and just downright taken away from what the really important issues are. So we at Power were talking more about the issues. And from that, um, people were engaged and they, they that's what we found was was the most important thing to them what affected them on their daily lives and so they didn't like it they didn't appreciate it from either side and they wanted to get back to the issues at hand let's talk about the things that are affecting our community rather than throwing dirt on each other yeah it was a lot of mudslinging david i mean when we've called people have called the political rhetoric that we've been seeing they've been calling it racist they've been calling it sexist and just hateful. And yet folks ran to the polls. We had historic turnouts in so many places. You know, we have to remember uh, when President Trump started, uh, he started on, you know, the rapists, the murderers, the criminals. During that campaign, I got a robocall. I was teaching, teaching a political communication class in the master's program at Montclair State. And it was uh, pigeonholing Marco Rubio. I actually have this piece of content, if I could share it with you, maybe. Um, from 2016, it was a robocall saying, will you vote for a minority president again? And this was right in the panhandle, I believe, this ad was being placed. Somehow I got it on my cell phone. I was targeted with it. And it was playing Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, lying Ted Cruz. And this was a Trump uh, operative uh, campaign. So we saw ads going a whole step further than that against Andrew Gillum and against, um, uh, in Georgia, uh, Stacey Abrams. So these ads were, I mean, way over the top, the level of racism, sexism, uh, but th- this was just to turn out the base. I mean, it's not helping the country in our in our division, but it, it did. T- I think it turned out the base uh, with the demographics that were attracted to the president to start. So we're kind of doubling down. I feel like it was a foreshadow to the 2020 campaign. Trump years ago said, you know, maybe if we had more hate, that people would um, be more engaged. So, I mean, Frank, hate, racism, outrage, it engaged people. Oh, of course, you know, and uh, this was really an emotion-driven election. I think we we sort of live in the age of extreme. It's very hard uh, in a large, complex society like ours where everybody's living online, everyone's living on their devices, etc. It's very hard to get and sustain people's attention. Mm -hmm. And so that pushes things to the extreme. And I think this is the most extreme election emotionally speaking, that we have possibly ever seen on all sides. I think it, not I just think it went against some of the, the standards of campaigning. Um, when you have an economy like you do, you would think that, that Trump would have run mm-hmm. on jobs and the economy. And, and he gave that up and he went for these extreme views 
conspiracy theory, fear-based mm-hmm. appeals. He op- they opted out strategically, I think, to go against. He said it was too boring. Theory. He said it would be too yeah. boring. Too and boring. The, he did yeah. say that. Correct. I remember that. Yep. Absolutely. Well, my feeling is it's all over the map. It's not just Trump. You know, we. I think that we saw extreme behavior in many places. One of the interesting things about Trump and electioneering is he often shows risk-taking qualities, mm-hmm. you know, pushing the envelope, making up his own mind, not taking advice, going to the edge, uh, fearless in uh, public venues. You know, he'll say anything. Yeah, truth and, or uh, not, yeah. You know, that raises... Anything, he'll repeat anything the crowd says, the audience says, absolutely. Yeah, A lot yeah. of his rhetoric wasn't predetermined rhetoric. It was determined by the crowd. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, uh, you probably know as a psychologist, Gustav Laban talking about the crowd, right? Mentality. I mean, he's an expert at like P.T. Barnum yeah. mobilizing the crowd. Mob, mob mentality. And, uh, and yeah. Kendra, there were polls done asking people why they were going to the polls. And many people said our president. Did you get that from <laughs> on the ground? Yeah, actually, I did. Um, I think that 2016 upset a lot of people on the ground. Um, people start begin to see the impact of their inactions, and it began to become a stepping stone. And I really think that this election is a step towards reengaging our communities in the political process. And so now that the midterms have come and gone, we'll be conducting civic engagement sessions where everyday people can learn about the roles they can play towards shaping their worlds. And I know there's other um, organizations and allies that are doing the same things nationwide. So look, look for this to be something to excite and ignite fires in folks that you've never seen before. Yeah. And so this could actually turn out to be good, but we'll we'll put a pin in that and return to that. So let's focus on the types of ads. I mean, we have ads like the Fitzpatrick Wallace ad that linked Wallace to Mumia and terrorists. And the fact yeah. checkers said that all these claims were shady. We've been bamboozled kind of and 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 pulled to the polls this this year. Will that work again in two years? Well, let's hope we learn, you know, and often we don't, of course. Mm-hmm. But my own feeling is that uh, we should talk about the media, too, and how the media Absolutely. has carried these messages. And uh, I have been shocked at the lack of objectivity in the media. Mm. I mean, opinion journalism seems to have taken over everything. You know, we need some objectivity. Mm-hmm. You know, there are cognitive biases, to speak psychologically, there are cognitive biases all over the place, confirmation bias, you know, that if you happen to have a particular viewpoint, then everything you see confirms your viewpoint. Yeah. And journalists should be beyond confirmation bias. They should be totally objective in their reportage. And I sometimes wonder about journalism schools. You know, are they teaching, you know, the current crop of journalists the, the, the sort of hard science of objectivity? I, and, I, and as a journalist, I have to stand up and say that this is the first time uh, a sitting president has literally attacked uh, yeah, journalists as enemy of the state. The I, do have I, to jump you know, in there. I mean, when someone is not just banning you from a press conference, but calling you the enemy of the people repeatedly, it's an attack on who you are. So I guess the question is, how do you stay objective when, when someone's attacking you or you're getting death threats to your family or you. Or incendiary devices like what happened with CNN. Yeah, politics that we're in when, when the yeah. true threat, the enemy, right, is information now. The enemy is the objective journalist. So I think that rhetoric has not helped um, in that sense. Some, some of the journalistic quality has been compromised in some reporting uh, because of this, this contentious um, relationship that journalists seem to feel with the president. 
Well, the First Amendment is everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it's absolutely the key to the success, you know, of our society. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, 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 you know, the media is certainly not the enemy of the people. But I do call on the media to, you know, bend over backwards to, to be as objective as possible. And yeah. uh, don't overgeneralize, you know. I mean, things like that worry me where, you know, a, a journalist will go into a, a restaurant in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and sit with a few people and then walk out of there and go on air and generalize. You know, about, well, how are people thinking in Wisconsin and, and actually start to say things? When we see the messaging, and we're specifically talking about, I mean, and, and, and journalistic messaging is part of the messaging. Um, and a lot of it was parroted. Part of journalists' job is to fact check some of these campaign ads because people are yeah. seeing this, believing this. I mean, they were, there was a one ad that I saw calling people a liar, a woman beater, and a thief. I mean, like in one ad. If you talk about agenda setting theory and framing theory in media studies, what's happening is every time Trump speaks, maybe they just have to stop reporting him sometimes. He says things to get you talking about him. I mean, the networks that done, has done best under Donald Trump has been MSNBC, the left-leaning network, because they, they can't stop talking about him. So he's almost baiting like a Russian troll when he says these things or fires Jeff Sessions. You know, we're not talking about other critical issues of the day, and we're talking about what Donald Trump tweeted at 3 a.m. So, you know, I think there maybe needs to be some discretion, you know, and I know some journalists have made a rule not to even mention his name or, you know, this type of ethics. We don't mention a shooter's name in a mass shooting because we don't want to give them public. But if the, if the president or, or anyone politician is saying something racist, you do have to cover it, but maybe you're getting played and the politician is setting the agenda for you to cover it for two weeks. So there needs to be that fine balance. Yeah, and I, I mean, go that, ahead. Um, social media is playing a huge peak, um, part in in all of this and in a lot of the spreading of the rhetoric um, that you hear going around. I mean, I can't tell you how many times a day I see false claims, reposted memes in different stories that are not, mm-hmm. you know, just are completely inaccurate. So, mm-hmm. you know, we can't put the full brunt of in responsibility on the media because it's going to happen anyway. I mean, society mm-hmm. is just it's, it's become the culture of our society to repeat bad information instead of looking mm-hmm. things up. Like we have a responsibility to ourselves to research and fact check for ourselves. We can't put that on on a reporter or on fact checkers to do that for us. We, the people, because we have a vote and because we have a voice, we need to do that and own that for ourselves. And a lot of this this fake news is not written by actual news organizations. I, there's Correct. a, a madnews.com is a, yeah. a, a, a former machinist and a nurse in their basement <laughs> drafting articles every day on a website that and they that they make up and people mm-hmm. are sharing it hundreds of thousands of times like it's real news. So I do want to and that was a perfect transition. I mean, now the nation is moving on. I mean, the message just hours, <laughs> you know, after the midterm, you know, discussion about the midterm elections came in. Jeff Sessions fired uh, all mm-hmm. this fast paced messaging by the president has twists. It turns the media is jumping on it. What is this doing to to the folks who are watching this? It's making them not care. I mean, just to put it short and simple, like people become disinterested when there's a lot of inconsistencies in a story. I mean, it it becomes um, too much to keep up with. But then on the other hand, you have a group of folks that like the drama. So then they'll keep being engaged. But that's why, you know, I can't I can't really stress that enough. Like this is not a game. (laughs) <laughs> this is not a Agreed. game, but it's being treated as such. And so the, the you know, all of these things that are being done 
um, right along with that messaging is to distract us and to to confuse us, basically, um, and to make people become, you know, just either completely disinterested or confused by the rhetoric and then repeating things and bad information over and over. With all this drama and our emotional highs and lows, will yeah. we now become desensitized to yeah. what's going on in America? I, I, I would agree with that 100%. George Gerbner looked at uh, desensitization in the mean world syndrome, it's called, uh, in media studies also. And, and what Trump, I think, had done, uh, he, he made it polytainment, not infotainment, but political entertainment. So it's drama. It's a reality show. Remember, he was trained in media. He knows about ratings. He knows about a plot line. He knows about narrative structure. He knows how to get a rise out of ratings or build characters, right, or build up and build down things. And he can do that at 3 a.m. on Twitter now without the media. So, I mean, he, he, he definitely he is a media guru, right? He, he's not listening to his advisors. He's the strategist, right? He's deciding these things. And, and, and most of the stuff he says is shocking, but the shock is gone now. When he said I could shoot anyone on Fifth Avenue and my polls would go up 10 points, we thought that was crazy. It almost feels he could, you know, at this point, because people are kind of tuning out as, um, as we were discussing. So, yeah, it, we're very desensitized. And the more we talk about these sensationalized firings or who's fired or who's hired or, or what caravan is coming, um, you know, I, I think that is to desensitize people to the real issues that matter. I, I'm not certain I fully agree. I have a hunch that given the 2020 election coming up, given the fact that power in Washington is now distributed better than it was last week, you know, in that one party now controls one house, one party controls the other house, etc. That can raise the possibility of change, and that can rearouse people and get them more interested again. And, of course, now lurking in the backdrop is the I word. Is it going to be possible to move to impeachment or not? And so, Look, I think we're so divided. I'm very concerned with, with the synagogue shooting and some of the violence that was happening leading up to this election. If they ever tried to impeach, you could see civil war in this country because we're so divided. I'm very concerned about the potential for violence leading into 2020. And when we talked over the summer, Sherry, I was talking about tribalism and violence. It's much worse now. You know, we actually saw violent acts leading up to this election. When we say enemy of the people, and we say that for a year and a half, two years, and then supporters in the crowd are wearing rope tree journalist T-shirts, that rhetoric has an effect. Right. It mm. has had an effect on how we see politics or how we see a journalist or how we see a fellow American, depending on race or gender. Uh, I'm concerned that, that if they tried to impeach him, does anyone really believe he would ever be removed from office? He would never leave. I've heard people say that, but I, I hate to think that, you know, that our rule of law does not matter. And I'll ask this to all three of you before we go to our final thought. People are blaming the president's rhetoric, all of this divisiveness and the rancor for the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, as well as for the incendiary devices sent to the media. We've, we just had another uh, mass shooting, this time on a college campus. Two African-American senior citizens were gunned down the same weekend as 11 people were killed at a synagogue. Is this messaging to blame for this or just people just, we just have a serious mental illness problem? Some of it can be due to the messaging, but one should keep in mind that elections are often associated with an increase in aggressiveness. Uh, there's research okay. dating from the 1920s mm. and 30s that showed that lynchings, public lynchings, as an example of public violence, peaked during elections. And the whole thing about elections is a transfer of power. 
from one group to another. And so it raises people's arousal and it can raise people's aggression. So I don't think that we're going to continue at this high level of violence that we've seen just recently as we get post-election. But, no, but I, I was saying leading into 2020, we may see it come back, yeah. Well, I, I disagree a little bit. Because, especially if Trump's running. <laughs> well, we saw, we saw this type of violence when Obama was in office um, as far as like the mass shootings. America has a race issue. It has a racism issue. And these mm-hmm. folks have been emboldened for a long time. But when Trump yeah. was elected, they were definitely um, empowered, empowered to go the extra mile. And now they're not afraid to shoot people in mass and they're not afraid to go in and, and wear these t-shirts and be very vocal about their hatred towards other people for no reason. So I don't think it's going to stop. I think that it is going to get worse before it gets better. But I think that we need to be realistic about it. Like it's not a, you know, it's, we can't say it's just because of this rhetoric. No, it's because America has a race issue. I mean, we have a racism issue and these folks are not being called what they are, which are terrorists, and they're not being treated as what they are, which are terrorists. So we just need to be upfront and and honest about that piece, you know, and really call it what it is and not just be so quick to blame it on. Oh, it's the yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, the divisiveness plus the, the race issues that, that were there. They were building, uh, they've been there since the beginning, really, but in the divisiveness of politics and the polarization, that, that was all, that led up to Trump, but, but Trump has now made things mainstream and acceptable to say, and this is where it upsets me the most, that my five-year-old and my three-year-old, I'm afraid to have them watch a press conference of the President of the United States, because I don't know what he's going to say. I don't know what hateful thing he's going to say to a journalist, like he did right. just yesterday, to Jim Acosta and everyone else in the room during that press conference. So I no longer can have my children watch a press conference of the president of the United States. Mm. Mm. Well, that that's horrible. But I want to. I guess I'm. But that's where we're at. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. Yes, of course, of course, that's that's where we're at. But I guess I'm the only one here that feels the sky is not falling. That okay. uh, that deep de- democratic tradition that we have in this country prevailed somewhat last Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that we've begun to redress some of the problems. And, yeah, we've got racism that's deep and horrific and other isms. But I saw a, a, a you know, kind of a glimmer of hope for yeah. our democracy reasserting itself. And I'm glad checks and balances, checks and balances yeah. that the Constitution worked as it should. Now the House is in the hands of the Democrats. There's going to be a check on this exercise of power, which we haven't had in the past two years. But because this is Flashpoint, y'all, we got to wrap this up. Fear, hatred, racism, divisiveness. Will it result in a more engaged electorate? I think it will. And I think that a key feature of the engagement will be a kind of revulsion against everything that we've been going through with hate and, and all of this, and that we will attempt to move to greater civility. Kendra? I think we saw it um, begin this midterm election, and I think we're going to see more of it. I can't tell you how many people are asking what's next and what are we getting ready to do for 2020. So the fact that it's on a lot of folks' minds is very encouraging. So I, I would say definitely yes. And last word, David. Hopefully there's hope there with the young people and millennials turning out. I think we're ripe for almost like a Jimmy Carter type candidate in 2020 that will just be nice and kind and civil and will be smart 
and will engage people and not be so partisan to kind of heal heal this era of politics. We need a nice guy in 2020, y'all. Or, <laughs> or woman, a nice person in 2020. So yeah, I want to yeah. say thank you to Dr. Frank Farley. Thank you to Kendra Cochran. And thank you to David Pallant for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, she's the first black woman to be elected bishop of a church that's 96% white. They didn't see color. They didn't see gender. Her vision for a ministry that has an open heart and open door in the region. We'll be right back. But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the Tweets with Flashpoint associate producer Brianna Bonds. Hey, Brianna. Hey, Cherry. That's right. We're taking it to the tweets, getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. So it was election day this week, the big day. So we put our poll on Twitter and we asked everybody, what is the most pressing issue moving you to the polls this election day? So our options were immigration, economy, women's issues and partisan frustration. Can you guess what? I'm thinking it's partisan. (laughs) Okay, I gave you a sneak preview at that. But can you do you know what came after? I have no idea. Okay, so immigration and the economy were tied 26%. Partisan frustration won it all with 36%. So that's a big gap from the top answer to the two runner-ups. Yeah, I'm not surprised because of all the, the stuff going on on Twitter, everybody being outraged on both sides. I mean, you saw some of the tweets just me saying that I voted today, people tweeting back, I voted all red. I'm like, I didn't I didn't say I, I don't talk about political party affiliations yet. People had strong opinions. People were very proud of their vote as they should be. However, they voted that they actually got out and voted. But there's a few things that these results say to us. First of all, it's all of these things pretty much are heavily weighing on people. So the economy, immigration, still a big deal to people. But partisan frustration taking it all, I think that means that people are pretty much tired of the rhetoric. We know we don't know what party they're tired of, but we know that they're tired of some people and whatever they're saying. Yeah, I think that people need to tamper it down. And I mean, you heard the professor. I mean, everything that they had to say about this, this is it just riled people up. That's, that's exactly what it did. And it worked because we had record turnouts mm-hmm. all across the country. We sure did. Okay, so we didn't include everything that everyone's talking about. Once I posted this, I realized that people still really care about health care, obviously. And so there are other factors that are big that people probably would have expressed in this poll, but our poll was limited, but I think it still says a lot. So that's all for this week's Flashpoint on the Tweet. Make sure that you subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. Catch you next time. Bye. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is barriers. And one woman is breaking them within the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Bishop Patricia Davenport. She is the first African-American woman to be elected a bishop in the history of the 30-year-old church. She will lead the 95,000-member Southeastern Pennsylvania Synod, which has 151 congregations. Only 4% of the members of the ELCA are minority. And with me in the studio to discuss her historic installation is the Bishop Davenport. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you first for the invitation to come. And then just thank you for your warm welcome. How did you feel the day you were installed at the beautiful New Covenant Church of Philadelphia? 
the moment was surreal because there were people who came from across the country, to my surprise. Wow. People literally from across the country. And I can actually say from across the globe because our partner uh, congregation, the Northeast Diocese of Tanzania, Bishop Munga and his wife, Aneth, came from Tanzania. Wow. So you it was had a people, great day. Yeah, it was a global day, global <laughs> celebration. I read that you were, you reluctantly ran for bishop. Many of my colleagues said to me, we sense in you the gifts to take this church to the next level. I sensed in me an opportunity to retire <laughs> and hang out with my grandchildren and yes. do some other things. You know, I said to myself, I can do consulting work. I can do interim work. I can supply at churches on Sunday. And then after a long conversation with Dr. Wyveta Bullock, who was actually the preacher for the day, she said to me, if your name comes to the floor, if you're nominated on the floor, let it go forward and trust the Holy Spirit. If it's not for you, you won't be elected. But if that's God's plan for you, you will be elected. And you were the overwhelming winner. Yes. Every ballot went higher and higher. Were you surprised? I was shocked. I was shocked simply because so to the point that I had made up my mind that I had plans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually out in the hallway when the election was over and I was about to go take my seat. And someone in the hallway said to me, I think they want you in the sanctuary. And I went into the sanctuary and people were applauding. And I started to applaud, and then they were looking at me. (laughs) And then I looked up on the screen, and I saw that I had been elected bishop of Southeastern Pennsylvania Senate. Overwhelmingly. Yeah, and just to, you know, there's a theory that most women who step into leadership positions have to be asked or called to leadership, that women don't necessarily seek out that leadership. And you kind of fall within that category, because overwhelmingly, your entire synod said, You should be this leader. One of the joys for me, standing on the platform, looking out at the whole of the body, was that 90% were my brothers and sisters who were Caucasian. And so for me, that spoke volumes, that they didn't see color, they didn't see gender. The only thing that they saw was me and prayerfully the gifts that God has given me truly to take the church to the next level. Let's talk about what makes the... Uh, evangelical um, Lutheran Church of America different from other denominations? First and foremost, we are saved by grace through faith. So our theology, our theology alone, you don't have to do anything to get there. Jesus did it on the cross 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we are saved by grace through faith. And faith alone is what does it for us. And I think that's what has held me in the Lutheran faith. I'm actually baptized Methodist, and yet raised in the Lutheran church. Mm -hmm. And so what is it that holds me or held me here when so many folk are saying, well, why are you in the quiet church? Why are you in the white church? Why are you in that church? And for me, it has been just that, the theology. And um, one of our mantras in the church is that we are marked with the cross of Christ. We are claimed, gathered, and sent for the sake of the world. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, speaks volumes. Yeah. And so only 4% of this church, and this church is huge, global church, and only 4% are minority. Yes. 
And now you're breaking barriers within the church, but you're not the only one because another African-American woman was also ascended to bishop as well. The next day, that Sunday, Vivian Thomas Brightfeld was elected in Wisconsin. Of all places. Of all places. Mm -hmm. So we know the Holy Spirit is at work. She is moving and she's moving in full force. Actually, in the ELCA, six women were elected bishop during this year. Wow. Wow. Six. Six. And so that's diversifying the leadership of the church. Um, And so what are the major challenges? Because, I mean, churches, I mean, there's all these theories that less the younger generation, people are less religious and all kinds of stuff. You see what the Catholic Church is dealing with right now. Does the Evangelical Lutheran Church have challenges as well? We have challenges. We have the same challenges that everyone else has. So churches declining, young people supposedly not attending. We call them nuns because they're like, no, we're not doing that. That's my mama's church. That's not my church. Or duns, people who have been through the church, established church, who said, I'm done with that. I don't want another board meeting. I want to be about something different. And so hearing that and not buying into that, because for me, I I choose. I choose appreciative inquiry. I choose to look for the bright spots. I choose to find how we can build on the good things that are happening, I choose to say these are some some challenges and concerns that I know we'll have to work through. Mm-hmm. However, we will not get stuck there. We're going to do what God has positioned us to do to take us to the next level. So not to be burdened down with the weight of um, diminishing churches. Mm-hmm. No. How do we talk to our leaders mm-hmm. to, to reinvigorate our leaders? How do we renew congregations? How do we help them to be the vibrant communities of faith that we know God has called them to be? So we choose to focus our attention mm-hmm. there and not to be bogged down. So I think that's going to make it a, a lot different for the, the people who sit on the pews and for the young people who are saying, well, what about me? What about me? So we are capturing the moment. We are, we are riding this out. I, I say for us in southeastern Pennsylvania Senate, we get to be the stone that's cast upon the water that causes a ripple effect Yeah, and changes everything. What do you think your appointment did? The, the fact that you were elected so overwhelmingly has done for the church. Has it done anything at this point? Just the, the image of you uh, here in this region, um, you know, ascending to that leadership role. I believe it has done the most powerful thing that I believe it has done is brought together the ecumenical partners mm-hmm. and our inner religious faith group. So at the installation, Rabbi Zevitz uh, spoke powerfully. Ruth Santana Grace from the Presbytery uh, USA, she spoke powerfully. We talked about what God is calling us to do together. Mm-hmm. And so I believe, and just from the number of people, this is the first time Historically, that people don't realize this, the Bishop Guy Glimp from the Church of God in Christ was a part of the apostolic succession of laying on of hands. This has never been done Mm. to bring in the historic black church. We had um, Jay Broadnax, the president of black clergy, could not be there. He sent a representative to be a part of the laying on of hands. This has never happened before. To bring these bodies together in one space for one moment, that's historical. And you all were in a black church as well. To have Bishop Granham yes. come 
and, yes. and be a part of this moment in time. Bless my heart. Yeah. And I want to say, I mean, people have said Sunday, you know, especially the worshiping hours are one of the most segregated hours or two or three of the week. And so but but this isn't and a church that is um, overwhelmingly majority white now has African-American leaders, women leaders on top of it. Um, what do you say about that that statement that that uh, that old stereotype about Sundays being the most segregated worship hours being the most segregated? From my lens, it's not. Because when I show up in churches on Sunday morning, I bring the diversity with me. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people say, you were at this church in suburbia. You know, that's right. A hundred percent? No. It's never a hundred percent when I'm in the space. So already we are tearing down those those um, myths about us not being diverse and and being uh, segregated. Just the mere fact that I'm an African-American female that shows up in the space makes it different. Yeah. And— I like to call it Bishop Undercover because I show up at any of our 151 congregations on a Sunday morning and they don't know that I'm coming and I don't wear my clerics. And so I just ease in because I really want to see if you're warm and welcoming. I really want to see how you treat the other. Yeah. And so I'm tearing them down. And so people are on notice. The bishop may come to your church. Are you going to be ready when she comes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, be, and that's the that's the thing because I know that the the church is open to people of all sexual orientations. Yes, it's open to people of all races, identities, whatever. It's an open church. Is that the truth? Do people have issues? Because I feel like people are people, no matter even even people of faith. How are you dealing with that? People are people, but one of the things that Southeastern Pennsylvania is known for is number one that we are open. Number two, that we are very progressive and our LBGTQIA plus community knows that we love them, knows that we stand with them. And just by the mere fact that we are one of the most diverse synods in the whole of the ELCA speaks volumes for us. You know, we don't just talk the talk. We walk the walk. We live the life. And people can see that by the visuals when you come on our territory. And that's absolutely beautiful. So what's your vision? I am but one person, and I represent the office of the bishop, and I do all of the administrative work, but we are the Senate together. So you think there are 95 people, 95,000 people who, who stand. And so collectively, we come up with the vision for Southeastern Pennsylvania Senate. Now, my hopes, my dreams would be that we would make an impact in the communities where we serve, 151 communities should be different because you're there. The school district should be stronger because you're there. What? Opioid crisis? There should be none because you're there. What? Violence and crime? It should come down because you're there. So my vision would be that the five-county area that we are located in would be different because the Lutheran Church is present. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. Amen. Amen. And so let's back it up, Bishop. You are, I read that you you were originally born in Annapolis, Maryland, been in Philadelphia for many years, eight siblings. Yes. And- Love them all. <laughs> Six brothers and two sisters. Love them all. <laughs> and now, so you're used to having a big family. I am. And I'm the oldest girl, so... There you go. Can you tell me the one thing that your parents taught you that you feel like 
has stuck with you and to is helping you most in this position? Take care of those around you. So it's always been, they've always modeled that. And so just historically, you know, I've, I've watched and I better understand why it is. We had a large family. So why it is we didn't have fried chicken. We had chicken soup or chicken stew because it was a pot. And many people could eat out of the pot and not just the nine children, but the neighborhood who came could eat. And so that was them modeling for me. We care for others, not just about us, but we care for others. I want to give you the opportunity to give the final word, you know, just a bit of advice, some hope, because everywhere I go, people are feeling sad. A lot of marginalized communities feel even more marginalized. Finally, tell people where they can find out more about your organization if they want to find a congregation near them. So my words of encouragement to us is keep looking up. God is in control. We live in two kingdoms. We live in the kingdom of God and we live in the kingdom of government. And so for me, our faith informs how we deal with government. When, when we see hate, we sow love. When we see uh, people trying to push folk to the margins, we say, no, there's enough for all and we pull them in because of our relationship. And so for us who, who live Um, or who have been marginalized, stand tall, stand firm, and trust God. Absolutely wonderful. So where can people find uh, the ELCA here in southeastern Pennsylvania? Just go to ministrylink.org, and you can find anything you need to know about me, the staff, any community of faith of the 151, a little bit for everybody. Congratulations to you, Bishop Patricia Davenport. Thank you so much. And thank you again for just this opportunity to, to meet you. Yes. Next up, they started out helping folks with HIV and AIDS and have since expanded. Poverty is a very close partner. A Philadelphia nonprofit's effort to end health disparities and the event that'll celebrate it all. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. Philadelphia's 2017 Health of the City report indicated that blacks and Hispanics have poor outcomes when it comes to potentially preventable hospitalizations. Babashi Transition to Hope has been on a mission to provide culturally sensitive quality health care since 1985. The health organization was founded with a special interest in helping low-income individuals of color with HIV and AIDS and has since extended its services to include a range of pressing health issues. Over three decades of work will be celebrated in just a couple of weeks at its upcoming anniversary gala. Here to tell us more is Executive Director Gary Bell. Gary, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. This is exciting times for Babashi. It absolutely is. We are doing a lot of wonderful things in the community. Yeah, and so tell us about some of the things you guys are working on. Well, we're, we're known for doing the sexual health work. The, we were the first organization in the country to address HIV in communities of color, and we've continued to do that. We've continued to do the, the testing and the screenings for mm-hmm. HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. We've continued to provide HIV medical case management to people who are living with HIV and really low-income folks that are really struggling. We have added things, you know, yeah, through the years. Yeah. And uh, as we've as we've just addressed uh, the many, many, I mean, Philadelphia is the, is the poorest big city in the United States. And poverty is a very close partner of poor health and health disparities, as yeah. we call them. 
So we started addressing breast health about nine years ago. We mm-hmm. have a program that provides breast health education and referrals for mammograms for underinsured African-American women because the mortality rate for African-American women is higher even though they get it. The incidence rate is lower for African-American women. We've had a hunger relief program for a long time. I mean, yeah. it's, it's grown. We serve about 300 or 400 people a month providing food, perishable and non-perishable. Another thing that we've done recently is partner with a group called Miriam Clinic, and we've renovated some space next door to us, so they're actually providing free medical care for uninsured people yeah. on Babashi's grounds, blood pressure screenings, glucose screenings, you know, trying to, to do some preventive care with folks, so yeah. it's really very exciting. Yeah, and I want to ask, I mean, this uh, Health of the City report, why are uh, black folks and Hispanic folks or just people of color having these poor outcomes? Why is that the case? Mm -hmm. Well, I I often go back to poverty because when we talk about, we talk about the social determinants of health and poverty. I always say poverty has many offspring, substance abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, uh, more incarceration, low literacy lack of access to health care. Yeah, yeah. So it, all of that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. And if you're just struggling to make ends meet, that isn't always your priority. You know, if you feel okay, you're, you're looking for, you know, where's my next meal? Where am I going to lay my head down at night? And for many folks, they, they don't have that um, experience with going to a medical provider on a regular basis and doing preventive care. What they do is many of them, unfortunately, use the emergency room when yeah, they get sick. Yeah, and that's not preventable care. It's not yeah. preventable care. By then, the horse is out the barn. By then, they're already sick. So one of the things we try to stress when we talk to all of our clients is wellness. You know, what does that mean? It's not just about waiting till you get sick. It's about going to the doctor. Now, you know, a lot of us don't want to go to the doctor because we're afraid they're going to find something, right? But you rather find it early yeah. when it's treatable than when it's not. Mm-hmm. So we really encourage folks to to go to the doctor and just have a conversation. And how many people y'all serve a year? All With all the programs, about 20,000. 20,000 folk. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's a lot of good work. And so we will be celebrating. Mm-hmm. I'll be there. And you'll be there. Absolutely. Tell us all about the event. Well, every year we do a a gala to raise money for our services. I mean, some of our services are funded and some of them aren't, but we continue to do them anyway, and and we have to raise money to do it. So every year we have a gala, and our galas are a little different than some galas. Yeah, some because are, sounded, he was sounding all like there's so much. But but y'all had y'all know how to have a good time in order fun. to raise money to do all the the serious work yeah. that you all do. Well, you know, people get dressed up and they want to have a good time. You know, so we have Ruben Studded, who will be performing at our gala. It's going to be at the Hilton Hotel, Penn's Landing, on Columbus Boulevard. We are going to have Gary O, who's going to have a dance party sort of at the end. And our galas always recognize people who have made a profound commitment and accomplishments in the community, mm-hmm. generally around health. Yeah. And this year we're focusing on the three main things that Babashi does, breast health, sexual health, and hunger relief. So we're going to be honoring three people in those categories. And it's really needed. I mean, contrary to what many people think, HIV has not gone away. Mm -hmm. And we certainly know poverty hasn't gone away and hunger hasn't gone away. So this this, uh, event will raise money for those things. And they can go to our website, www.babashi.org, and get tickets. Once you get there, you'll see... A big picture of Ruben on there. You click on that picture, and you can go right to the site and buy tickets. You can stop by Babashi. You can call us at 215-769-3561. If you want to stop by, our address is 1235 Spring Garden Street. 
you know, if you think, look about what's going on, you know, in, in D.C. and everything, we don't know what the next chapter is going to be. But we do know we have folks right here who really need help, and that's where we are. All right. Well, thank you so much to Gary Bell, Executive Director of Babashi Transition to Hope. Check him out at babashi.org. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app or other platforms. All you need to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As English novelist George Orwell once said, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.